We got new theme music because this is the next episode of Adventures in DevOps. And joining me today, Jillian Rowe. Hello. And we have from the fields of Canvas, Kansas, Canvas, Kansas. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Glad everyone had me kick this off. (laughs) Jonathan Hall. Hello, everybody. And working on my English skills, it's... uh, Dang, I forgot my name. Will Button. Man, we are just off to a rocking start. At least I am. So this episode, let me dial it back in here. We're going to talk about building and organizing DevOps teams because we've mentioned multiple times that like DevOps teams is kind of a misnomer, yet here we are. And it's actually a thing we do, not who does it. But there's still DevOps skills that you need. And you need to organize your teams around those skills. And kind of what triggered this was just looking at the vast array of different things that fall into the spectrum of DevOps from, you know, from one extreme of writing code all the way to the other of building and deploying servers. And it's quite a diverse range of skill sets. And I think the key point that I was hanging on to for this was no one person is going to be good at all of that stuff. So how do you create a team? How do you identify the skills that you need and then align the right people on your team with those skills? You remember that time where you ran into that works on my machine kind of problem and you get in and you're thinking, okay, I checked the libraries, I checked everything else. And then it turns out that there's something really weird about the production data that's just different from your test data. Or maybe you're thinking, man, it'd be nice if I had a database that was as large as the production database so that I could actually see what the performance characteristics are. But you can't copy the production data because you don't want to have all the customer information on your computer. Plus, you may be running into regulatory things like financial or medical. So what do you do? Well, you try out tonic.ai. Tonic.ai will look at your data set will do the analysis and will build you a customized data set for your application so that you can test it and run it on CI and on your development machine without exposing any of the actual data from production. It's awesome, it's easy to use, and it's definitely worth checking out. So go check them out at tonic.ai. Uh, it's an interesting question. It seems to kind of plague uh, the tech community as a whole, right? With the kind of crazy interview practices that we're talking about right before the show, like take-home tests. I didn't know those were a real thing. I found out just before that they are, like, it's not an urban myth. They are, in fact, a real thing. That sounds very silly. But, you know, but to get back to the point, I would say, I kind of want to say, like, if you have a DevOps team, they're going to have to cover so much ground that you're going to need people with complementary skills. So maybe like hire one person at a time, figure out where their strengths are, unless they already happen to be very familiar and can just tell you that from the get go. And then, like, and then continue to hire other people, uh, to, you know, to fill in for the different areas that maybe aren't so well covered by that one person. Because yeah, just like you said, not everybody is going to be great at everything. Not everybody is going to be interested in doing everything. We all have kind of you know, different experiences and different skill sets. So luck with the draw, hire somebody and see how it works out. Well, I think there's an interesting parallel here. I have a a good friend who was a Navy SEAL for 20 years. 
And he was both a sniper and a medic, which I find really ironic in kind of a sick and twisted way. But that's not the point. The point is, like, through him, I've learned that whenever they go out on deployments, they're always in very small teams, very similar to the way that a lot of tech teams are organized. But they also organize the team based on skills. So within a given team, they'll identify the skill sets that they need for that particular job and then staff the team based on people who have those skills. And I was like, well, that's kind of an interesting approach. And it seems to fit with what we're doing because, you know, you'll have one person on the team who's really strong in hardware and another person who's really strong at writing code and someone else who may be really good at, you know, incident management. And so whenever you combine all of those people on the same team, then you get this like entity that's very well-rounded with deep areas of knowledge. So I think one thing that's important when trying to figure this out is understanding the stage your company is in or your team is in. There's a big difference between hiring your first DevOps person, for example, and hiring your 20th or your your thousand, are you replacing somebody who left the company or are you building up your DevOps culture and infrastructure from the beginning? And then you're going to answer that question, who to hire, very differently in those two scenarios and all the other scenarios in between. Yeah, no, that's a really, really great point. So what, in, a, uh, in building a new team, mm-hmm. what would you look for first? The first, so I've done this a few times for clients of mine. The first thing I look for is somebody with a lot of general experience. Uh, so I'm not looking, at, you know, at that stage, I'm not looking for a Kubernetes specialist, for example. I usually don't, and unless we've already decided on the technology stack, I don't really care what technology they have experience in. I'm more interested in do they have a big picture view of how our type of application, whatever that is, is it microservices or is it a monolith or is it serverless, whatever, whatever we're doing. Do they have a general understanding of that approach? the architecture of those types of systems, and do they have, of course, the knowledge to put those systems into production and to build the pipelines. You know, I'm looking for I'm looking for a, an experienced generalist in that situation. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and somebody, of course, who can, uh, assuming the company will be growing and will not just have a single DevOps person forever, somebody who can help hire additional people and help mentor and train those other people. So, you know, that first hire needs to be, they're, they're probably expensive, because you need somebody good and solid to lead, to, to basically become a team lead and then let them hire the rest of the team over time. Yeah, I think I agree with that and don't have anything to add to it. I think it's well said. <laughs> you know, that's got to be one of the hardest things about doing podcasts. It's like that scenario. It's like, yeah, I agree with you. That's when Moving you on. Arguing for the sake of arguing. Right. <laughs> well. No, we don't need Kubernetes. What are you talking about? You know, that kind of thing. Just stirring up manufactured drama. I can do that. You know, I can I can be that person for you guys. I'll take that hit. We don't need CIC. Right, Have a Perl script. Argue with me. <laughs> Argue with me, Jillian. Go. Where I think it's a lot harder <laughs> is, is for your, your second and third hire, you know. So you have your generalist and who, who do you hire next? Who who and the, and the problem, the reason that the problem is because there's different ways to think about it. I mean, you could look at what is this this first hire? What is he wasting all of his time on that we could hire someone else to do? Or where where is he weakest? You know, you, you, there's different ways to look at this problem. So I, I I don't think there's a general answer to the second hire. I think you, I'm, my approach when working with clients would be to identify where they're struggling and, and hire around that. But that's that's much easier said than done, of course, because you, often people, especially the, the 
that person that, that I'll, I'll call him the team lead for now, even though in this scenario, he's the only person on the team. He'll become a team lead. So the team lead probably has different feelings about what he needs to hire for, for help than, say, the CTO or the CEO, whoever else might be involved in the company. Often your, your business leaders, your CEO, your C-suite, they're looking to deliver faster features uh, more quickly and so on and so forth. And this guy is probably looking to uh, reduce his workload stabilize things and not get called every Friday afternoon when something breaks. <laughs> so, of course, the, the whole idea of DevOps is to align those goals, right? Yeah. And operations should be, is there to support the business. So there needs to be alignment. But it's not an easy question to answer because because there, in any business, there are conflicting goals. Yeah, I think that brings up a really n- another important quality that you want to look for in that first DevOps hire. And that's that they need to be a really strong-willed communicator. Because like you said, the the C-level suite is probably going to have different ideals and goals about what they want to accomplish. And it's going to fall on the shoulders of that DevOps individual to push back and, and say, look, I understand what you're trying to get to, but the way you're trying to get there is not sustainable in the long term. I'm a really big fan of, um, I don't know if it's quite the right term, but this idea of self kind of self-organizing teams and structures where, you know, like, so for example, my favorite teams to work on have been the ones where, you know, starts off as one or two people. Those people go out and get their coworkers because they're like, this is what I need. You, you over there, you know, like come here, come, come here and work on this thing with me. Um, and I've had that happen from, you know, like working together and being in sort of like cross department kind of projects. I've had it happen quite a bit through open source where I contributed to open source projects and then it was, you know, kind of me to get a job or a new contracting gig and they already knew me or, you know, vice versa. I already knew them and I had something that I needed done. You know, those were, I think, the most productive and best teams to be on. I suppose there is also like kind of a level of experience inherent in that, I suppose, as well. You have people that are kind of senior enough to be out there, you know, connecting with people on other projects. It means they're probably working on something that's you know, like too big for them to handle on their own. And also they know that, which is something that I always appreciate because, uh, you know, every software engineer loves to be like, oh, we can, you know, we can rewrite this. It'll, it'll be fine. We'll build it from scratch. And then, you know, six months down the line, you know, somebody will realize that, oh, maybe it wasn't quite so simple as we thought that it would and uh, it needed to join force. Uh, you know, so for example, in bioinformatics, there was this really, in all of data science, there was this huge problem with being able to compile software and there were so many, like, I think every institute, every university, every big HPC center had their own kind of homegrown solution for compiling software. And then, like, Conda and EasyBuild just came and just blew all those out of the water because they were so good and so many people latched onto them as kind of, like, this solution that all of us are working on together is so much better than all the things we have all kind of cobbled together with, you know, Perl and Bash throughout the years on our own. But let's go like all work on this thing together. So I know there is actually a management kind of term for it, but I don't really do management. Do you guys know what that is? Is it self kind of self-organizing team structures or is there another word for it? Funny you should ask because that's the book I'm reading right now that or, or finishing that's gonna be my pick today. The self-organizing team is the term in the scrum guide, I believe. Yeah, maybe that's where I got it from that. Um, and it might even be in the Agile Manifesto, but yeah, the self-organizing team is definitely a, a term that so I just uh, looked it up, my, and, and the really term self-organizing teams is in the Agile Manifesto, so that probably is where the Scrum Guide got it from. Cool. Good to know I'm using the correct terminology. Yes. So, What about you, Will? Feelings on, should management be making all the hires? Should CEOs, you know, C-level 
people be making them or should teams kind of organize themselves? No, I think if you have, if you have C-level executives involved in hiring decisions that aren't other C-level positions, you have a leadership problem in your company. And that's probably going to piss some people off, but I'll, I'll stand by that statement. (laughs) I think it's, I think it's a pretty fair, pretty safe bet to claim that many companies have leadership problems. So, I mean, that's, I think even most <laughs> leaders would admit to that. <laughs> yeah, it's not like I'm blazing new territory here. <laughs> Especially tech companies. I don't, I don't know what it is with tech companies, but every once in a while, you'll just hear one where it's like, oh, you guys had a perfectly good, you know, nice, profitable company here. And then one of you just did something real stupid and blew it up. Huh? <laughs> you know, every few weeks, never ceases to entertain me. So, so maybe we can address this. We can talk about it. So we, we talked a little bit about how do you decide who, who you should hire or, or, or what kind of what kind of person? But how do you select that person? So you decided you want a generalist or you decided you need a Kubernetes expert or an AWS guru or whatever it is you, you determine. How do you select those types of people? I think for me, it's definitely not with a take-home test. And, and I think my interview style, so I should probably clarify this. I'm a horrible interview person. As so, an interviewer or an interviewee or both? As an, in, as an interviewer. Okay. Like, I make horrible, horrible hires. (laughs) (laughs) So once I learned that, I built this habit of doing like group level interviews where I would bring in the candidate to meet with the key members of the team and then try to make it as casual as possible, given that it's still an interview. So I would bring in pizza. A few occasions I brought in pizza and beer. And then HR was like, dude, you can't do that. I was like, okay, well, we won't do it here then. And, um, <laughs> and so the whole goal there was to like take the edge off of people so we can actually communicate as humans and get to know the candidate as a human and the candidate can get to know us as humans and, and then from there make a decision. And that actually worked out really well. I, I did that, developed that process working in an environment where uh, the teams had to be super responsive and it was in a healthcare trauma situation. So we actually could impact patient lives through either our action or our inaction. And um, so it was really important to get it right. And that seemed to work really well. So when I'm inter- interesting, I've when never I- worked on anything like that. I've never had a beer interview, but I think I might have to start doing that now. But I, I don't like to take home tests either. And honestly, I feel like well, to, to me, coding or, or or configuring Kubernetes or whatever the technical stuff you do is really such a small part of what we do, especially in DevOps, which is really about culture and, and business alignment. That if you if you focus on that, you're you're not really focusing on the most important parts of the job. Well, that's not yeah. to say that you should hire somebody who can't configure Kubernetes, but like that's kind of the easiest part of of the job. Another way to look at it is I have I have hired many people in my career or advised my clients to hire many people, and I've fired a few as well. But, you know, I've never fired somebody because they couldn't do the job technically. I've only fired people because they couldn't get along with their colleagues, because they didn't come to work, because they were maybe racist or calling names at work, you know, things like this. I've never fired somebody because they couldn't configure Kubernetes or they didn't know AWS. I've only fired people because they refused to learn to do those things or because they had a bad attitude. So those are the things that I think are more important to look for. Uh, and of course, that's not to say that those other things aren't important. I'm not saying that at all. But that they're they're easier to gauge. And you know, one of the easiest ways, I think, to, to detect a uh, an expert 
on technical topics is just to talk to them about this topic. I, I've written right. about this. I'll put a link in the show notes. But I, I think just talk shop to somebody. You know, if you start yeah. talking about AWS to somebody who doesn't understand AWS, you'll figure that out very quickly. I mean, unless you don't know either, in which case you need to find somebody who does. So, you know, that, that makes it difficult if you're a non-technical founder trying to hire a technical person for the first time. That's a difficult challenge. Yeah. I'm not addressing that. But uh, generally speaking, you, you can find out if somebody's faking it or not just by having a, a human conversation over beer and pizza. Yeah, because you, you don't, like, you know, like, you know, I don't think I'm adding anything valuable to the conversation here, but like, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I, I wouldn't do a take home test. I've never made anybody like I occasionally hire, you know, contractors come in and out when I have more work than I can handle. And anytime I have done so, it's always been like, I'll pick a few kind of smallish tasks. And, uh, and like, I'm always upfront about it, too. You know, like, okay, let's, this is the project that I have. We'll start off with these few tasks, try each other out. I also believe like people should like working with me as well. There shouldn't be this kind of weird power dynamic or anything like that. And then just see how that goes. And if they can do the work and they're not like horrible to communicate with, nothing really weird comes out, which occasionally it does, you know, like then everything is good and we, we just all carry on. But I found that very rarely, I don't know if it's just because I've been doing this for a long time, but that very rarely happens anymore where I'm interviewing somebody that I like absolutely don't know uh, because like I've been involved in the same kind of open source projects for I mean, it's you really heavily for like at least the last five years. And it seems like I know like the same like 20 people and we all kind of rotate through the same kind of like jobs and positions. <laughs> I'm not sure what that says about the world of bioinformatics, but you know, but there it is, which is again, which again brings me back to this kind of idea of networking and self-organizing teams and um, yeah, you know, getting out there and, and just talking to people, contribute to projects. I think that's actually common because I've noticed the same thing. I, I tend to work with a lot of the same people over and over. And I think we try to communicate that as networking, which to someone who doesn't have a network, misinterprets that as go to networking events and hand out business cards. But actually, it's just get to know the people you work with and like get to know them as humans. And then over time, that's going to like circle back around as you feed each other jobs and leads throughout the rest of your career. Yeah, I think that I mean, just to kind of flip the conversation a bit. So if we're kind of advising people who are, you know, maybe they want to start interviewing for DevOps roles and things like that. I don't know. I have people ask me sometimes and I don't really have any great advice because, you know, and I sit here and I scoff at the, oh, take home tests. I would never do that. But when I was first starting off in my career, I did a ton of free work. I did free internships and free research studies. And I worked for free for like two years while also working in like restaurants or whatever it was I was doing at the time to be able to to kind of support myself. And I know, you know, at the time I was very lucky to be able to do that. I didn't, you know, it was just me. It was me and my boyfriend, now husband. And like, I didn't have any kids or any big responsibilities. And if I ate ramen for weeks at a time, you know, I ate ramen for weeks at a time. But I think it would be much more difficult for somebody who's going through kind of like a career shift and maybe has more responsibilities like, uh, you know, I, I don't know what, kids, mortgage, car, things like that. Yeah, for sure. Do we have any advice for people like that or just the standard go contribute to open source software, which is always my advice all the time. I think contributing to open source software can work for like building a portfolio of things to show to potential employers. But I don't know that that's going to result in a job. I think the to get a job, your first job, I think it's a matter of submitting you know, eight to 10 applications per day 
every single day until you start, well, even through the interview process and then doing multiple interviews. And it's just a numbers game. Like I, the, I think the biggest thing I try to emphasize with people like that is if you're looking for a job, then looking for a job is your full-time job. Therefore, you need to commit 40 hours a week to that to that endeavor. I tend to agree, although I, I get burned out doing 40 hours a week of job searching. So I, yeah. I can't do that much of it. But, I, you know, it's, it's definitely... 40 hours a week of work. I'm not thinking about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm in full job search mode, I usually, that's the first thing I do every morning is I, I apply for jobs, basically until I can't anymore. So my brain won't let me anymore. And that's right. maybe two or three hours a day. And then the rest of the time, I mean, depending on what's going on in my life, maybe, uh, maybe I have another job that I'm just trying to replace it so that I work. Or maybe I have something else to work on. But I can't. I mean, maybe the first couple of days, I can do eight hours of job searching, but it starts to get super tedious. I would just say if, if you can do eight hours a day of job searching for, for six weeks, by all means, do it. You'll get past the results. But if you can't, don't feel bad. Just do what you can do uh, and, and don't give up. Yeah, for sure. Persistence is key. And if, if you're trying to get a job, then you know if, if your brain fries after three hours, spend the rest of your time. If you have nothing else to do, write some blog posts or start a podcast. Do something that gives you some exposure. And it may not pay off immediately. But in a year, when you're looking for another job or two years, you'll be glad you had those blog posts out there. Yeah, I think yeah, that's I think an important... That's actually really great advice. That's really good. Hey, folks, I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, I, I have to complain. I mean, when I started in tech like 20 years ago, one of the first things they taught me was to use tail and grep to find the problem on a server. And uh, I, I don't do that anymore. Um, I have to say Raygun kind of solves that problem for me and picks up all the stuff that really is relevant to the request or whatever that hat came in. Um, I'm curious, do you find that with kind of the oldsters like me, a common thing or? I think there's definitely better approaches to solving some of these problems now. You know, <laughs> I, I always used to think of logging. I heard this great analogy once. It was like, you know, logging tools are like coffins. Things go in there. They very rarely come out, you know, um, and you feel safe because it's there, but there's so much noise. Understanding what's mm -hmm. important and what's not takes a lot of effort. Um, yeah, and I mean, you know, often I talk about Raygun's crash reporting product as being like a black box flight recorder. Like, just tell me when the plane blows up because I need to fix that really urgently. <laughs> You know, um, and that's been hugely valuable. And you don't need to tail that. That's true. You know, folks, you should just go get Ray Gun, and then you can see when stuff breaks, what matters. You can get it at raygun.com. They actually are doing a free trial, so go check it out. Yeah, I think it's a good clarification. Like, when I say spend 40 hours a week looking for a job, it doesn't mean 40 full hours of filling out job applications, but 40 hours of doing things to put yourself into a position yeah, yeah. to get a job, which is, you know, obviously filling out applications, but like you mentioned, Jonathan, um, creating things for potential employers to look at and get an idea for your skill set. Yeah, I mean, I know for myself, when I started my blog, within like a couple months, I started getting a lot of job offers, and I still do. And I haven't written a new blog post in like a year or something. It's bad. <laughs> um, but like, you know, but it is, it is there, and it's an asset, and it lets people... I suppose know that um, you know I, I know what I'm talking about and I have actually worked on these things. Yeah, so I, so I think all that is great. I don't know about like yeah I don't I don't know how colleges these days are doing colleges or boot camps. I mean some of them have job placement programs. I don't know how good those are. Where I went to university, if you did all the free you know research studies and internships and things that were offered, you know which was it was difficult depending on your situation because again they weren't paid. So you know you had to you had to keep working. 
unless your family was floating your expenses or something like that. I don't know if like boot camps and things these days have something similar. I know I did a training for Udacity. I did their um, machine learning engineer and they do have a job placement program, but I never really used it because at the time I had a job. So I just, I didn't really care. And that seemed to be pretty typical for about half the people going through those programs. So I don't, I don't know like what kind of numbers or statistics you could actually get from any of you. Are there DevOps boot camps? I mean, there probably are, but I, I certainly haven't heard of them. There are, yeah. I can't think of any of them by name right now, but over on my YouTube channel, hashtag shameless self plug DevOps for developers, I've spoken with a couple of people who have commented. <laughs> I've spoken with different people who have commented on the videos saying that they're taking DevOps boot camps. And um, I don't know, that's an interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting route. I should go, I should, I, yeah, I'll take this as my homework. I'm going to go look up some DevOps boot camps just to see what the curriculum looks like, mm-hmm. if they have job placement services, see if I know anybody at any of them. I've right. seen on, um, and I'm just mentioning Udacity because I, I did one of their courses and the course was quite good and they did seem to have at least some job placement and that's the only one that's probably still open anymore that I've done in the last couple of years. Um, but they have they have like a cloud engineer, and then I think they seem to be more into kind of data science stuff. So like cloud engineer, data engineer, I don't know, maybe like computer vision, like different like specialties. And then you go through and you kind of like an RPG game or something. You collect like all the skills, and then they open up like a you know a new skills portal for you once you once you've gone through all of those. So it's a bit. I mean, you could collect enough to basically have like a college degree. I think. I don't know. I mean, that brings me back to the whole. I don't really know if you have like a DevOps camp. I mean, first of all, it would be expensive. I would think, unless you're just working on like really small instances that aren't really going to do you any good. So I think it would be quite expensive for just the regular person. And then, yeah, again, I think to do DevOps, you need experience with like you know, I would say at least maybe software engineering, data engineering, depending on kind of like what side you are. It's probably going to be combining a couple of different skill sets together. And so I don't really know how you could just do one boot camp unless it was unless it was quite long or it was for mid-career professionals or like, okay, you already have whatever, data engineering, software engineering, this this other thing and you want to add, you know, and then you want to be able to call yourself an DevOps professional. I think you could do an AWS boot camp or a Kubernetes boot camp or pick your tech mm-hmm. stack boot camp, right? But instilling the, the DevOps mindset of, of aligning business goals with 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 technology, it's a little bit of a harder thing. I, mean, I, I guess it's almost an MBA at that point. <laughs> it's a technical MBA, maybe. So yeah, it, it's it's a DevOps is a fuzzy enough term as we talked about a week or two ago that it's it's really hard to, to make an all-encompassing boot camp. I think it's less of a boot camp and more of like a retreat, like one of those um, yoga mindfulness retreats where you go off into the woods in a cabin and we meditate and chant and recite DevOps principles and philosophies. Let's do it. <laughs> Yeah. Let's, let's I'm plan totally the, the first. Right. We'll call it the Adventure in the Woods uh, DevOps. <laughs> 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 the <laughs> That's horrible. I apologize to everybody listening to this poly podcast. I just say stupid stuff. There's no filter. <laughs> That's why they're here. <laughs> I think that's what happens, uh, like when you just sit in front of a computer for too long and like you're just in your own little cave trying to solve problems and like your inner monologue starts just going off on like some really strange direction. That's when I know that's okay. It's time, well, time to go do something else. All right, play a sound effect, a little, a little taking a break sound effect. Yeah. After these messages, we'll be right back. Oh, yeah. Nice, nice music, some chanting. <laughs> just <for the> chanting. <laughs> 
Uh, to go back to like right. the advice thing though, and uh, something that I'm actually doing for myself, so let, so let me tell you all about it. And if so, if you do DevOps or you want to get into DevOps or any field in general, and you know, and we talked about doing, uh, you know, a blog, YouTube channel, podcast, whatever, something like that. But then again, also, like, if you have, like, a product or something publicly released that you can point to that's like, yeah, that thing, I built. And it doesn't really need to be making money or need to be especially successful. And you don't really need to be, like, sharing that with people either, you know, just that on the down low. But, like, I think that's a really good thing to have out there. And I'm actually following that advice for myself because one of the things that I want to start doing is getting into the AWS marketplace as, like, a, a platform for developing and delivering the data internet. And since, first of all, so many features are really new and uh, something I kind of want to be known for, what am I doing? I am building apps for the AWS marketplace. And it is so horrible because it is not well documented at all. And just there are these errors. And then I'm like, what is this? And then I have to go reverse it and hear the errors and, you know, and then like just go figure all that out. But at the end, I will have a product out that's something that I can show to people that's on the AWS marketplace that I will be able to like write about, you know, write or blog or whatever about my experiences building that product. And then hopefully people will want to hire me for that. I don't know. Sometimes I've got similar things that they haven't, you know, they haven't worked out so well. But this one did. I'll let you guys know what you I read a tweet this morning that I think is pretty relevant to that. Nobody fails for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> so stick with it, Jillian. Oh, I don't, I don't know, you guys. I might. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like all my career has been like mostly geared on luck. Like the first couple jobs I got, I was like, I am here and I can work and I am mostly competent. <laughs> like that was, it was like, that's ah, fine. You know, come in here, go build this stuff for us. So was that, did we cover that? It was, how do we hire? Did we talk, did we fully flesh out how you hire? I don't think we fleshed it out completely. We, we agreed not to do take home tests. Right. We read the top, we, we read the pizza and beer. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I think once you have pizza and beer, the rest, yeah, the rest just kind of solves itself. Now, one big takeaway that I think we all, all agreed upon is like for evaluating technical skills. If you have those same technical skills, you can just have a general conversation with someone and understand whether or not they have the skills or they don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important that you use the word conversation because I've been in some interviews where it really felt like it was, you know, like Jeopardy or some kind of crazy trivia show and they were just trying to play like stump the engineer, yeah. which I guess is fine if you want to do that. But, or maybe if you had some like really high stakes, stressful situation, <laughs> you know, like how they responded under stress. But otherwise, so I, I, think I think you brought up a good point and, and that is, I think it's important to understand the goal of an interview. If you're doing, if you're, if you're the interviewer, the goal of the hiring process, of course, is to find people who can do the job you need well. And those sorts of questions, those stump the engineer questions, have a very, very low correlation to can you do the job well? And it, it's only for the fact that Google exists. <laughs> you know, if yeah. you ask, how do you, how do you change the IP address on Linux or something like that? You know, most people don't know that off the top of their head, but they can find it in about five minutes or less if they need to. So what's much more interesting isn't how do you change the IP address in Linux, it's what steps would you take to change the IP address in Linux, and that includes potentially using Google or looking it up in a book or whatever method you would use. So that this is one reason I don't like take-home tests, and it's a reason I even more dislike the automated, like, leak code or hacker rank type tests, because they don't represent a realistic work scenario, especially for DevOps, but even for, for software development. So, I mean, I, I think if you're concerned that somebody doesn't have enough Linux knowledge or Kubernetes knowledge, 
maybe you can do a screen sharing session with them and just walk through some sort of problem. Like, how would you, how would you deploy a pod on Kubernetes and just walk through them you know, together doing it? Then you can learn. If you aren't able to get enough information by a conversation, do something like that rather than asking trivia questions. What command do you type to deploy a pod or, or whatever? You know, but those, those are not realistic measures of the work they'll be doing. In real life, they're going to have an actual scenario to solving. It's not going to be some trivia thing. It's going to be to solve a business problem. And they're going to have time to accomplish it with Google or asking a colleague or whatever. So that's, yeah, that's very important, I think. Look for so, problem-solving skills, not yeah. how well somebody can memorize facts. Right. So I guess that's advice for people doing interviews, which may be a minority of our, our audience. I don't know. If you're in the interview and you're getting those trivia questions, I would take that as at least a yellow flag, if not a red flag. And uh, consider, do you really want to work at a place that, that has such a poor understanding of what's required to do the job? <laughs> and if, of course, if you need a job, you need a job. And if that's what you get, that's what you get. But uh, in our in our field, it's, much, it's becoming more and more democratized. And you can usually afford to be a little bit bigger. Yeah. I wonder, I kind of wonder, like, how how much of a role the thing companies have had in that because i know a lot of them are the ones that made these super uber technical interviews popular and like the motivation for going through that with netflix is could potentially be worth it because you know they're paying 500k and up but if you're working at a smaller company where the Pay is nowhere near close to that. I'm not sure those same interview techniques are going to be meaningful to you. I agree. I, I, they I think still it, do those at like Google and whatnot because didn't they didn't yeah. they do those and then actually study them and then find like that yeah, this is a you know this act this isn't a very good way of doing things. So, so did my, they ever actually stop? Or? My, my take they still do a lot of that at many of those companies. But my take on it is this: those those things, uh, those automated tests, you know, trivia type automated testing is really good at filtering people out. It's not really good at filtering people out along the dimensions that matter, <laughs> but it's good at filtering people out. And if you're Google and Netflix, you don't really care. You have so many high-quality candidates that you just need to filter people out, right? Yeah. Uh, if yep. you, you get a 1,000 applications for each, each role. You need some way to filter people out that's scalable. And maybe an automated test is a way to do that. And you still have enough highly qualified candidates to go through that that you're willing to do that. The only other group of companies I know of that do that are the ones with non-technical management who don't feel qualified to do technical uh, management, uh, technical interviews. So they they believe, or or maybe they don't believe this, but they're willing to put up with it anyway that these technical tests are the best way to do filtering, uh, just because they don't know how to do those conversations over pizza and beer that we're talking about. Yeah. So, so if if you're Google, then of course you don't need my advice anyway. <laughs> but, <laughs> but then go ahead and keep doing that. If you're not Google, then maybe try not to do that and find a more effective way to filter your candidates. Yeah, I've kind of said it a couple times in this podcast, and I'll say it again. Focus on the human that you're talking to. Have a genuine human conversation. And I think you'll be much more successful in your hiring in the long run rather than trying to emulate something that someone else does. Yeah. That's not that's not meaningful to you. By that I mean like trying to interview like Google when you're not Google. Right. Cool. Y'all ready to go do some picks? Sure. Let's do some picks. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced 
whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Jonathan, I know you're ready. You mentioned it already. Kick that's us off. right. I have this bit two weeks in the making. So <laughs> I, I just finished reading the book that I mentioned two weeks ago called A Radical Enterprise by Matt Parker. The subtitle is Pioneering the Future of High-Performing Organizations. And I, I, I really like this book. I, I thought I would, and, and I was right. Uh, it talks about four sort of key areas where high-performing organizations allow for what he calls radical collaboration. So I won't go into all of them, but as an example, self, uh, self-organizing teams is one of those one of those aspects. And different ways self-organizing teams happen. You know, in some companies, people can can uh, they they can change teams whenever they want to, and if they don't like it, they can go back to the old team. And maybe that seems inefficient at first, and maybe in the short term it is, but in the long term, you get people where they should be to be most productive, and they feel more more empowered and like they're doing more meaningful work. One of the more surprising chapters was about salary and how some of these companies have removed salary completely from managers' responsibilities. And he talks about three different ways this is done. The, the simplest one is from uh, W. Edwards Deming, which is basically everybody gets the same salary based on role and seniority and nothing else. There's no merit increases. There's just just regular you know increases. The longer you work there, the longer your seniority, the more you get an increase. But otherwise, there's no change. And, and the reason for that is to, to remove the politics and the the subjective views that your manager might have uh, about you or that you might have or your colleagues might have in a 360 review and sort of thing like that. Um, another way is to do uh, salaries that are uh, self-selecting salaries. Basically, anybody can give themselves a pay raise. Maybe they have to... You laugh, right? And of course, it sounds ridiculous, but it works. No, I want to work for one of these places because I got an idea. <laughs> so uh, the example he gives, you're required to get advice but only advice. You don't have to follow the advice. So if you want a pay raise, you put together a little presentation. Here's the pay raise I want and why. And you have to give it your presentation to your, to your colleagues and they can give you feedback. And they found that on average, one of these companies on average, they had a 10% salary increase across the board, which is a lot lower than you might expect, right? If I can give myself yeah. a pay raise, I'm getting $2 million this year or whatever. So that didn't happen. And I guess because of this, this sense of accountability to your colleagues, you know, if I get $2 million, then my, 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 my coworker is going to ask for $2 million also. And, you know, be a race to the top and pretty soon the company's bankrupt. So anyway, this particular company had an average of 10% salary increase, but their productivity like tripled. So, you know, from a business standpoint, it was a huge benefit. And then the last one, the last salary option was basically each company, each, uh, they mentioned one company that did this. Each employee has their own profit and loss statement. So they kind of act as a one person business within a business and you, Maybe you buy, if you need to use a copier, then you contract with whoever bought the copier. <laughs> and so, you know, that's an expense. But overall, each person tracks their own profit and loss. And they have accounting like tools within the company to make it easier. So it's not a huge burden. But by mm-hmm. doing that, then you have your base salary and then you get like 20% of whatever profit you made the company or something like that. So you sort of get this individual salary based on literally the, the value you provide to the company. So anyway. I won't keep going. I'll just stop with those little things. But it's a really fascinating book about different ways that actual real-world companies have succeeded with this idea of radical collaboration, getting rid of managers, 
self-selecting teams, all these sorts of things. So it's a really interesting book. It's not specifically about software companies, but there are many software companies in there. And, and I think the author is a, is from IT because he talks about like code bases and stuff like that pretty, pretty naturally. So you'll feel right at home reading it if you're in the IT industry. Uh, it's a great, great book. Right on. Jillian, do you have a pick? All right. While Jillian works on the technical issues, I'll go through with my pick. So I read a blog article. I think it's a blog article. We'll call it that a couple of weeks ago. And I'm going to absolutely butcher Lee's last name, but it's by Lee Dityonkin. And the title of the article is Why Putting a Pane of Glass on a Pile of Shit Doesn't Solve Your Problem. And it was a pretty cool article. His thought process there is that one of the common themes whenever implementing DevOps and um, and reorganizing teams, there's this management philosophy of put a pane of glass, single pane of glass on it so we can see everything. And so the approach he takes in this article is that's really just exposing things, but not doing anything about them. And as an alternative approach, he's suggesting if you want to do that, if you want to like restructure and reorganize your team for better, better operation, the first thing to do is to pick a team to start with and start standardizing things for that team. And then once you have that standardized where engineers aren't either guessing at what services IT ops has provided or rolling their own services and tossing over the wall to IT ops. Once you have that out of the way, then you can move on to the next team and doing so is solving the harder problem. It's actually solving the underlying problem rather than putting it, putting a nice pretty dashboard on top of the existing problem just to make the problem look cooler. So we'll put a link to that in show notes. And uh, I thought it was a pretty cool observation. Are you back, Jillian? I might be back. I don't, oh, I don't my know. God, I'm you sound back. wonderful. I don't know what's happening with me and technology tonight. It's not my friend. But speaking of technology, so I'm going to pick this really cool looking application that I've been kind of testing out lately, which is called AppSmith, uh, which is a part of my whole low code, no code. I want to find something that can build really nice interfaces for me that I don't have to write code. And I have to say, this one is the closest that I have ever found to anything that I think is, you know, like really going to work. It's not quite there yet because you can't put like custom JavaScript libraries in, but I think they they said they're building up this quarter. I saw it on a GitHub issue, but it is like, it is really neat. You just go there and data sources and APIs and uh, you build the interface like right there on the screen and it's all drag and drop and you can do like a lot of nice, you know, it's reactive and filtering and like all the kind of things I think that the web developers want on an interface, I think. But it was, it is really, really nice. Uh, I recommend you go check it out. It's all very like open sourcey. Too. They have, you know, their commitment to open source and they seem to interface with a lot of other open source projects. So I just thought that was really cool. And I had another pick, but I don't, I don't remember it right now. Oh, the other one was uh, React JSON schema forms, something like that. So if you, if you just Google React and JSON schema forms, if you have a JSON schema and you can just basically render that in a form using a React library and it comes out looking like really nice and it does like the, Kind of stuff that React schema does. So if you have like any of, or if you have a list, uh, you can like automatically append items to that list. Just all these kind of things that I don't ever want to have to code. It does it for me. So I'm quite <laughs> happy with that. 
yeah, that's it. Those are my picks. I can't help but think that if Microsoft had just kept Microsoft Access alive, we wouldn't need all of these low-code, no-code frameworks that we currently have. Yeah, that and Dreamweaver, right? Yeah. We had the pinnacle and we threw it away to go get something else. And now look where we are. <laughs> so sad. Now we have now we have to deal with DevOps. Right. <laughs> you guys need to stop this. Sometimes I feel like people say things and I'm like, listen, you're about to code me out of the job. I'm not ready for that right now, okay? I need I need another couple of years to get into the next thing. And then <laughs> code me out of the current job. But like I just I can't do it right now. Like how I need for Kubernetes to survive for another couple of years because I have way too much invested in this particular crazy train. I think you're safe there. I think you're going to be all yeah. right with that one. Yeah. Yeah. Kubernetes isn't going anywhere. Yeah. I mean, it, it'll it changes every three months, but it'll still be here. Right. <laughs> but fortunately, there's a lot of companies that don't upgrade, so you've right. still got a market. <laughs> yeah. I still get job offers for Pearl on occasion, which is considered like very like legacy now. Yeah. Like, oh, you're right, Pearl, right? Uh, I could for the right price. No, there's yeah. no price for me. <laughs> yeah. I did it for 12 years. That was enough. I think Already we're done. Yep, that seems like a good stopping point. When you start talking about parole, it's time to wrap the podcast up. So thank you, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you all again next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.